Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's uh, some talk going around about rebooting the hit TV show Friends with new friends, of course. Fans are up in arms about it. Don't ruin a work of art, they're saying. And you have to admit, uh, a hit show remade with a different cast seems kind of disrespectful. Besides that, trying to create a new hit show by cashing, on in the old, cashing in on the old and familiar one definitely has the odds stacked against it. Now, if it seems like there's been an exhaustive pattern of rebooted films and television shows over the past 10 or 15 years or so, you're right. And the vast majority have rarely lasted more than one season. Sometimes we get a, a, the same show with new actors. That's a reboot. Uh, sometimes we get a revival, which is a continuation of the original show that might be set well, maybe years later. And sometimes we get a sequel or maybe a prequel, um, usually in films, but not always. And it's the reboots, though, that, that I have the most problem with. The rehashing of an old hit show or maybe an old movie uh, being pushed on a new generation. And I know I don't have to watch them, and mostly I don't, uh, but I'm not dead yet either, so they could wait just a little longer, you know, without uh, having to see a, a reboot of the monsters that's on the way. They rebooted Baywatch 20 years after its original season. Uh, it was a one-season wonder, like most of them turn out to be. Same with Melrose Place, and Prison Break, and Heroes, and that 70s show rebooted as uh, the 80s show, I think, uh, uh, and Charlie's Angels, of all things. Charlie's Angels. That one was rebooted in 2011, and it only lasted four episodes, so ha on them. You know, I've got a, it got a whopping 0% rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. One reviewer wrote that, I never thought my eyes could hurt this much. <laughs> the list just goes on and on. You could probably name some yourselves. It's a, it's a lot. It really is. And it makes you wonder... You know, where all the creativity has gone in Hollywood. Uh, so now that's off my chest. But what brought it up was the idea that, that uh, Jesus' disciples must have wondered if their old lives are going to get a reboot after the crucifixion. And even after his resurrection had them wondering what their next move should be, at least for their immediate futures. They'd only seen Jesus a couple of times since Easter. Uh, last week was the Lord's second appearance to them. That was when... Uh, the disciple Thomas was with them, the one who wanted to see the crucifixion wounds for himself. This morning, this morning is the third time. Now, we're not really given a full accounting of what Jesus did each day in between the resurrection and this morning's uh, breakfast appearance. What we do know is that for 40 days before ascending back into heaven, he, he was busy showing himself alive to all sorts of people so that um, they could witness for themselves his victory over death in the grave for us. Over 500 people, the Bible tells us, saw Jesus alive again. That's a lot of eyewitnesses. To take the sting out of death, though, you have to defeat death, and that's exactly what the Lord's resurrection has done. Real outside-the-box thinking. For a lot of that time between Jesus' second and third visit, the disciples simply waited around for further instructions. Their lives had been turned upside down, right side up again. They were in turmoil, uh, rudderless, you could say. And they did exactly what you and I do when our lives are turned inside out. Uh, we retreat to the familiar. We eat comfort food. We surround ourselves with the things we know. Maybe we'll throw ourselves, in, ourselves into work or, or maybe exercise or hobby, uh, and hobbies. And, and all the while, you know, processing things and, and planning 
what we should do next, our, our next move. And that sounds like exactly what the disciples were doing when the Lord caught up with them again this morning. Uh, Peter had announced, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going fishing. And six others must have thought, why not? Because they followed him. Seven of the 11 simply went back to the sea. They went back to their old lives as fishermen, seeking the comfort of the familiar for a time in the, uh, the midst of this upheaval of everything and every plan they had come to embrace over the past three and a half years. They sought out the familiar feel of the boat beneath their feet as it rocked gently on the waves, or the rough feel of the net in their hands, the snap of a sail catching the wind, the smell of the inland sea. They'd spent all night fishing, seeking peace as much as fish, but they hadn't caught a thing. They were still learning that once Jesus comes into your life, you can never really go back. Not so much because everything you knew has changed, but because you've been changed. As the sun's rising, they're about 100 yards offshore, and they notice a man standing on the beach watching them. He calls out, do you have any fish? No, they call back to him. He says, throw your net over the right side of the boat. They're over there. Well, this is no cruise ship, right? I mean, the right side of the boat was just a few feet away from the left side of the boat, so it shouldn't have really made any difference. In fact, if anyone could have seen any fish in the water, it would have been the men who were on the water not somebody standing a football field away. But the suggestion of a stranger on the beach to these seasoned professional fishermen would normally have just been ignored, but strangely they do as he says. It reminds you all the times people would marvel at Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? And they would remark afterwards how he spoke with such authority. I guess he hadn't lost his touch. The disciples quickly discover their net is so full of fish they can't even haul it out of the water. They must have turned to each other in amazement and then to the man on shore. And John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Well, Peter, you know, impetuous Peter, dives right into the water and begins swimming back, not willing to wait until they secure the catch and the boat is turned around. When it finally does land, he helps them drag the net on shore and they sift through the, the catch, keeping 153 large fish. Now, some people have tried to make a big deal out of that number 153. They make it all mystical or something, but I think it's just there to make the point that after they sorted out all the small fries and threw them back, they were still left with a catch that could only have been miraculous. It's one of those details that has John saying to us, this really happened. Meanwhile, Jesus has been cooking some fish of his own and baking a little bread, and he invites him to breakfast. But really, that's just the surface of this story. Earlier, three years earlier, back near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke records a similar story. The disciples had been out fishing all night and hadn't caught a thing. This time, though, they're washing their nets on shore, trying to put the, the night behind them when Jesus comes along. He climbs into one of their boats, into Peter's boat, and after using it for a sort of floating pulpit to, to teach the people that were always following him around, he orders that they, they put out into deep water where they'll find their catch. And that time, too, they listened, and they go out, and the, 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 the net, in the net there's such a great catch that it begins to break, and the boat is in danger of being swamped from the sheer weight of it all. Well, Peter didn't miss the significance of that moment either. He fell to his knees before Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Remember what Jesus said? What he told him? He said, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That's when they left everything to follow him. 
You know, Jesus was assembling the 12 men who would be his, his closest companions in ministry. These were the ones who would carry on that ministry after he was gone. Wouldn't be an easy life. Uh, wouldn't always be uh, anything but challenging, really, and sometimes even very dangerous, uh, but ultimately rewarding, even though most of them would die violently for their, for their faith in their Lord. But once you're called to faith in Jesus, you can never really go back. The old life will never be satisfying. It's like it won't be a, a good fit. Not because it's changed, but because you have. And most of you here this morning have been called to faith at your baptisms. You were adopted into the body of Christ, that is the body of believers. Um, and, and with that, you were given a gift or gifts that will ultimately define the role you're to play in that, in that body. Now, do you ever think that you're the hands and the feet and the voice and even the face of Jesus to the two-thirds of the world that still doesn't believe? It's an it's a awesome responsibility. But until you take up that role in earnest, until you play your part, you'll never find complete happiness or satisfaction. You'll never really achieve success, at least not success in the, in the spiritual sense. Now, you might be wildly successful in terms of, of what you accomplish in the secular world, but inside, in here, in your heart, on the inside, uh, you'll always find yourself wanting. <clears throat> Jesus' disciples were called to be fishers of men. They could spend all the time they wanted after Easter sitting in their boat on Galilee, and they would never achieve real success there anymore. And so they hadn't caught a thing until Jesus comes along this morning and fills their net for them. Now that night, back at, looking back to the night Jesus was arrested, uh, a lot had happened. After celebrating the Passover together with his disciples, Peter, James, and John had had fallen asleep when they were supposed to be watching for him as he prayed in Gethsemane since the night before he was crucified. Uh, so uh, when the guards did come and, and arrested Jesus, uh, most of the, his, his followers that were hanging around ran away in fear. And the Lord had already told Peter to expect that, that uh, he would deny him not once but three times that very night. And in shock, Peter, of course, had professed his devotion and swore he would die before that would ever happen. But on that night, after Jesus was led away, Peter followed them and, and mingled with the servants in the dark courtyard of the high priest. And he watched as Jesus suffered through a mock trial. Three times, strangers had come up to Peter, people who thought they recognized him as one of Jesus' followers. And three times, Peter denied ever knowing him, each time becoming more emphatic. And that's when Peter looked across the charcoal fire people were huddled around to keep warm and, and, and the time that his eyes uh, were drawn to Jesus' eyes watching him, hurting for him. And Peter, Peter fled in, in, in tears and humiliation over what he'd done, his, his own weakness. This morning he finds himself looking across the charcoal fire at the Lord once again. And this time when they lock eyes, Jesus speaks. Now that conversation they have is really a... Uh, the heart of this breakfast encounter. It was time to restore Peter and give him direction. Um, and so uh, it gives him, a, I guess you'd call it a spiritual reset. Jesus spoke three times to Peter, paralleling the three denials. First time Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? Now he could have been talking about uh, fishing and all the things went that went along with that. Uh, he could have meant, do you love me more than these other men? His, companions of ministry do. But this is really a test that would lead to Peter's restoration. So what Jesus is really asking, and based on the word for love that he uses, is do you love me more than these other disciples love me? 
What would Peter say now? You know, after all that had happened, you know, what would he say about his love for Jesus? What could he say? The Lord uses the Greek word agape, which is the highest form of love, uh, sacrificial love. Before his denial, Peter had told Jesus that even if he were the only disciple left, he would never abandon him and fall away. And then he fell away like he fell off a cliff. This Peter is a much humbler version than the one he used to be, though. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He knew better than to compare himself with others. His word for love is different than the one Jesus used, though. Peter used a word that, that said something like, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I love you like a trusted friend, like a brother. It's a little insight into how bad Peter must still have felt about letting him down. Jesus said, feed my lambs. That's what Jesus had called Peter to do, feed the lambs. You know, Jesus would often use everyday things to, to uh, represent spiritual truths, and Peter knew that he was talking about spiritual nourishment, about leading the lambs, the believers, to, to word and sacrament. Jesus asked him again for the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Without the, the comparison. And Peter answered the same way. He didn't boast, he didn't object, he simply depended on Jesus, knowing that, uh, knowing that, that Peter held him dear. This time Jesus replied, tend my sheep. So more than just a feeding, Peter was being charged with shepherding over the flock uh, to, to watch over it, to guide it, to protect it, to comfort it. When Jesus asked Peter a third time, do you love me? He changed the Greek word for love from agape to match the one Peter had been using. John tells us that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time. And we can only imagine, can only guess really at what Peter must have been thinking. He couldn't avoid remembering his denial of Jesus, and his heart was, was certainly broken with regret. And now, on top of that, he's being questioned by Jesus about his love for him, as if it weren't genuine. Well, Peter stays humble, and against what we know about his nature to leap before he looked, uh, he refuses to jump to his own defense. Instead, he appeals to Jesus' own knowledge as Peter's God, as his Lord. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus tells him, feed, literally, uh, keep on feeding uh, my sheep. Such a powerful conversation. What might you have told Peter if it was you that he denied after making such a big deal about his undying love for you? I probably wouldn't have been nearly as gentle as Jesus. I might have been tempted to rub his face in a little bit. You know, how can I ever trust your love for me again? You know, how can I, you ever work for me again after the way you denied me? Right? That's where we go, but not Jesus. Instead, he directs this repentant sinner to become a leader of his people, the same way he'll restore us and put us back to work for him today. What a load that must have lifted off the disciple. You know, what a load it can take off our shoulders today. Then Jesus tells him, kind of lets him in on where this is all headed one day, to a cross of his own where he's going to die as a martyr. And then he says, follow me. Three times Peter had denied Jesus in that courtyard. And now after the resurrection, three times he'd received the Lord's absolution. And each time God, Jesus forgave him, <clears throat> it was like giving him a brand new fresh start. A reminder that since Peter's uh, new birth in faith, he was free to focus forward instead of looking back. His past sins had been forgiven, uh, erased, deleted. You know, he'd been restored just as if his denial had never happened. 
recommissioned to do the Lord's work. That's what unconditional forgiveness does. And it's powerful stuff. You know, you too have been called through your baptisms into the Lord's service, wherever that might be, doing whatever God has gifted you to do in order to play your part in someone's salvation story or, or God's kingdom work. And he's empowered you to do it through his Holy Spirit. Now, right about now, you can hear Satan whispering, well, that's hard to believe, not after what you've done, not after how far you've wandered away from him. But no matter where you're at right now, spiritually speaking, the good news of the story is that, like Peter, uh, we can be restored too. You can have a new beginning. Easter is all about new beginnings. Peter discovered that even failure doesn't equate with finality. Jesus restored him. He gave him a reset. Then he said, follow me, and they were off on a road that would eventually lead Jesus back to heaven and the disciples to Pentecost and then out into all the world, just like he calls us to follow his lead today. Now, every Sunday, our eyes should be opened again and our mouths proclaim with the disciples on that fishing boat, it is the Lord. Share that experience as you share the blessings because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.